Well, I don't know about you guys, but that was a great dancing song, if you ask me. Hi, my name is Debbie Hunkins, and I've been attending Genesis for the past 17 years. And again, if you would like to pull out your app or grab a Bible at the end of a row or open up your own Bible, today, um, as the last couple of weeks, we're reading through Micah, and I get the very end. So we're on Micah 7, 18 through 20. It is on page 868, if you have one, 869, sorry. If you have one of these Bibles, I'll give you a second to find it. And it reads, Who is a God like you, pardoning inequity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out our sins into the depths of the ocean. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. You over your uh, turkey and carb overload coma yet? Feeling all right? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes. All right, good. Uh, awesome. We had a big old crew at our house twice, and so it was fun. It's fun. Good to be back uh, at church today. And we have a big deal coming up, a big part of living out our mission. As a church, we, we realize that, that the God who came and rescued us, um, left his home and glory, came to us, and, and when we deserve justice, gave us mercy and love and grace. And it ought to create a people who care for the poor, love the broken, are involved in the people in the world. And one of the ways we've been doing this for years uh, as a church is our Gift of Love Christmas store, which is coming up in two weeks. If you're new to Genesis, uh, but, but you are hanging out here, we want to really encourage you to jump in and be a part of this. And uh, if you've been part of Genesis for a while, you kind of know how this rolls. But this is Jody Burnley. Everybody say hi to Jody. Jody's husband had a birthday today, so I uh, didn't know that. But, but uh, this is uh, uh, Eric's wife, and she's been a leader here at Genesis. And she's run point for this store for how many years now? Eight years. So she is like an apex leader helping us make this happen, and I'm so thankful for she and her team of people. Um, and she's going to help us. Like We just want to like introduce this and make sure you know what's going on and then give you a real clear challenge uh, as we go out today. So tell us just a little bit, what, what is the idea behind the store? What, what's happening uh, now and in the next couple of weeks? So the idea behind the store was initially started um, in conjunction with the elementary schools where invitations were sent out to families who were struggling um, with an opportunity to buy new Christmas gifts for their kids. And the, the, the basic part of it is each child was allowed, um, the parent chose three gifts for each child um, up to the sum of $60 total. And they would send us the, they would receive the invitation. If they wanted to accept, they would send it back. And uh, then we get to shopping. And when these families come the day of the store, um, our, what we set before them are material gifts for their kids. But what we pray over them before, during, and after is that we would develop relationships with them, which we have over the years. We have developed relationships with multiple families and gaining safe relationships in hopes of a gospel opportunity where the Lord can meet their greater need. Um, this year, we did extend invitations through the elementary schools, but we have a good number of personal referrals through families in our church who knew of somebody in need and was able to extend this to them. So that relationship goes even deeper. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right. So there's a couple of ways people, you can get everybody in here can get involved. The first is actually by helping us with gifts. How many families are we serving? How many gifts do we have need yet? And what's that look like? This year we have 15 families and 42 kids total. 
Um, we started this morning with 45 gift tags. We are now down to 30 because you all started early. So there are 30 gift tags back there that are gifts that still need to be fulfilled. And this is the last week you can pick up a tag. And then all the gifts are, um, need to be returned back by next Sunday. And so the basic idea is there's a tree in the back with 30 tags left. Our goal today is to have a tree in the back with zero tags left, okay? Uh, and so if you haven't done it already, everybody in here, jump on and be a part of it. If you have, buy another, okay? Um, the, the families also get a basket full of things that, that are, um, you know, like laundry and, and uh, house cleaning and other household items. And there's just a whole bunch of ways that we, we find to serve and love these families, follow up with them. Um, and on that day, so what's the date of it? December 9th, Saturday. Saturday, December 9th. We want everybody involved. Where are we doing this? When or where? Where? Blevins Elementary School. Okay, so if somebody, if those of the people out here, if they want to be a part of this, what do they need to do now to make sure we know? And what do they need to do on that day? So now there's a sign-up sheet in back. There are jobs from small to big. If you just want to come, check it out. You could be at what's called a floater, which basically means we just pull you and tell you what we need. Um, it's a great way to come and check it out without feeling like you've committed to something that you don't understand. Um, so you can sign up there. The night before the store, Friday, we actually meet at the church office and we go over to Blevins and set up. The morning of December 9th, we will meet at the elementary school at about 7.30, 8 a.m., um, open all of our stations and welcome the first family at 8.30. And so, so there's like all kinds of things to do on that day. There's people who wrap, people who greet, people who become our point of contact. We call them our, our personal shoppers. Mm-hmm. Is that the right language? Mm-hmm. And, and they actually walk around with the family, they become the, the people who really build a, a moment of relationship with these families who come and start the process of trying to open the door so we can share the gospel with them, but show them that we love them. And there's some follow-up that they do. We send them a Christmas card that's signed by their personal shopper and all that kind of stuff yeah. and give them a few other things. So, um, so it's a great day. It's a big deal for us as a church, and we want to challenge everybody to get involved. So two ways you, you can jump in right now is, first of all, grab a tag, buy a gift, be part of that. It amazes me every year how we pull this off, and, <laughs> and, and we literally end up you know, having uh, more than enough gifts, but, uh, you know, we're, we're not a huge church, but we serve a lot of families. It builds goodwill will with the city, with the school, and with these families. And then the second thing is to plan on being there either the night before and or the day of. Sign up for that. The way you sign up uh, is basically like everything else here. You have a green worship folder. Uh, there is a QR code on that worship folder that you can scan with your phone and open up all the events that are going on. And there will be a sign up tab for that in there where you can sign up for that day. We really want to know you're coming so that our, our crew can kind of make sure we have enough people assigned in each area. So anything else you want to share with us? Nope. Just a summary. You can pick up a tag. You can pick up stockings, candy stocking stuffers. There's some ideas back there. Um, you can donate money online if you're not a shopper because all these gifts get bought. And then be praying. Be praying for those serving. Be praying for the families that we're serving. Um, and just be, be in prayer. The Lord is good. And um, we want to share that with others. Cool. Well, you thank her for coming up here. And uh, be a part of that day, Genesis Church. Be, be, jump in. Uh, if, if you're new, it's an unbelievable day to come really get connected and to meet people. Uh, it's, a, it's a hoot. Uh, to, to walk down, down in the back of the school and to see our uh, rappers 
Uh, and, and they are just all dressed as elves and stuff, and they have a, a great time. It's just a great day to come serve, but also to, to be part of the Genesis community. And so, uh, big, big thing with that. Um, have you started watching the Hallmark Christmas movies yet? <sighs> Did you start like back in July? Is that, you know, uh, <laughs> you know uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a Hallmark Christmas movie guy, but we are going to have a little bit of fun during our Advent series. So we're, we're ending... Um, our, our series in the book of Micah this morning, and we have an Advent series. We're actually going to stay in the Old Testament for Advent, and we're going to tell the story of, of Jesus, great, 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 keep going a bunch of times, great grandma, who was an outsider in, in, in the, the nation of Israel. She was, not a, a, she was a Moabite. She wasn't even included in God's people. And this amazing story of Ruth uh, and so we're calling it, we're going to have a little, little Hallmarky fun. We're calling the series Ruthless, a Hallmark Christmas story, because it's a, it's a fun, cute little love story. It's, it's got all this sort of stuff. And so we'll be doing that starting next week, and that will take us through uh, our Christmas Eve service and all that kind of stuff. And just one other little plug about uh, our whole Christmas plan is that Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, okay? Uh, which um, is, is interesting because it creates a challenge. We've always had a Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock, and we're doing that Invite family, friends, neighbors. It is a, a great experience. We're in and out of here, and right at an hour, we'll sing a lot of Christmas music. Uh, we'll hear a challenge from the book of Ruth that, that will point us to the person of Jesus and show us how the, this beautiful story of Christ is fulfilled and uh, fulfilled. Um, of all, all of our needs, hopes, dreams are met in him. Um, and it's just a great service. But we are also having our Sunday morning gathering. And our Sunday morning gathering is going to be a little bit different this year. Uh, Christmas Eve, we are actually letting Genesis kids take over our service. And for our Sunday morning service uh, on the 24th, Genesis kids leaders are going to teach us the Genesis kids lesson. We're going to sing some songs, but we're going to play the games and do all the stuff that normally happens back there and celebrate that Christmas by having the, the Genesis kids lesson taught to the whole church on Christmas Eve morning. So I know that's a lot in one day, but we'd love to see it for both of those, but that's kind of our game plan. All right, that's a lot of stuff leading up to this. Um, if you're a sports fan, uh, which I know meets about like uh, all my sports illustrations, like my whole half my family just goes to sleep and gives up on it. But if you're a sports fan, one of the arguments you have all the time is the goat. Who's the goat, right? Uh, and by the way, goat is not who's the you know thing with the horns and goes back you know and, and runs you over when you go to Grant's farm you know and try to feed it. Uh, the goat is an acrostic for greatest of all time. So if you ever heard anybody talk about the goat, that's what they're talking about. Who's the greatest of all time? Who's the goat? And it's an interesting conversation when you get in the sports world of who is the goat. You know, the whole LeBron-Michael Jordan conversation. You know, who's the goat, okay? Uh, and by the way, uh, how many of you all think it's LeBron? How many of you, see, see, a lot of old hats. How many of you think it's Jordan? Yeah, we're an old congregation. My son-in-law will fight for the fact that it's LeBron. Uh, and, and, and then if you're really old, you're like, neither of them. You know, Bill Russell, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like a lot of other, it's a, good, it's a good discussion. Or if you get into football, you know, kind of now you're kind of to the Brady is probably the right answer, but there's all kinds of, you know, you, you talk baseball. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I, I don't think any ladies are sitting around going, you know, who is the greatest crocheter? Who's the goat in crochet? Like, there's just something weird about this conversation or who, you know, who, who's, the, who's the goat at, at you know, needle stitch? Uh, 
Who knows? I do know this. I, I will tell you this. I do know the answer to this question. There is a goat of making mashed potatoes. And you can say what you want to. It is my wife. And it, it's not even close, okay? Uh, she is the greatest of all time mashed potato maker. Uh, I don't care how many potatoes she makes when people come over for Thanksgiving or our meals. She had, so, she had this pot that was like this. And I thought, man, we're going to have leftovers of mashed potatoes. I was excited. I didn't even really get first. They were gone. Like, it was crazy. I, like, you know, and then we had this family over. She, she told her, she was like, oh, those were the best ever. Uh, they were amazing. In fact, I'm going to give you snaps. She was like, they were this good. You know, I, it, it, you know I, sometimes the argument of the greatest of all time is like an argument. In other, some sports, there's really no argument. For example, if you were to argue anybody other than Wayne Gretzky in hockey, you would just be wrong. It's, it's not even a close thing, right? The GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you know this. If, if, some of you are like, I don't know any of this. Please stop. Uh, uh, but uh, <clears throat> in, in, if you were to take, Wayne Gre- like, take away all of Wayne Gretzky's goals scored. So in hockey, you get a point when you have a goal or an assist. For those of you who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hockey's played on ice with a stick. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> If you were to take away all of Wayne Gretzky's goals scored, he would still hold the NHL record for the most points all time. It's like not even close. Like, there's not really a debate about that issue, okay? Who is the GOAT? Well, what we have today in our text is a simple question that comes from the prophet Micah, and it's kind of the GOAT question where he just basically says, who's a God like you? Is there anybody else who compares? Who is a God like you? Now, it's really interesting as Micah is ending his book here. He's been writing this amazing prophetic book, but it's been a hard journey. More on that in a minute. He ends with this question that is actually his name. The word Micah, the name Micah literally is a compound Hebrew word that means who is like Jehovah, who is like God. And so he is raising the question as he ends his book, that was raised when it just said the prophet, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Micah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet whose name means who is like Jehovah, who is like God. And he ends the book by saying, is there anybody like you? He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He is making a comparison and he wants us immediately to go, nobody, there's nobody like our God. Now, now, this is set in, in a, 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 a very hard moment in Israel's history. Micah, if you're a guest, we've been journeying through this. He wrote about 800 years before the life of Jesus. The nation itself was a mess. There was a lot of brokenness. The injustice like, that he's pointed out, the, the Lord speaking through Micah has pointed out over and over again that there are horrible practices that are being done by the people who claim to know God. So when, when, when the righteous, and when the people who are supposed to be following the Lord are involved in injustice, wickedness, sexual sin, I mean, just like the brokenness, if their culture is awful, the culture around them is just going to be worse because there's no salt and light. There's no beauty coming from the people of God because they are walking with their God in the culture. And, and so the world around them is just going going left into a ditch, like they're they are steering this off a cliff. There is like, and, and, and over and over again, God has loved them by sending prophets, yet over and over again, they just keep running away and ignoring the Lord. And, and the outcome is that their lives are not only 
disconnected from knowing their God, the outcome is that they, we, all of us turn in on ourselves and we actually believe I'm the goat. I'm the only one who matters. I live for myself. And, and so we end up in a world that looks like the world that is. The Bible just keeps showing us this is where it goes. If, if God removes his protection and gives people over to what they want for themselves, it's disaster. And, and we all, apart from the grace of God, are, are headed that way. The, the 7th century doesn't look a lot different than the 21st century in our context. We don't have to go far to see that people are a hot mess. We don't have to go far to see that people will abuse and fight for power. We don't have to go far to see that people will, will, will sexually use people. We don't have to go far to see that people who are, are broken, but their brokenness is really, there is a such thing, there is such a thing called evil. And we don't have to go far to find it. And then the Bible keeps reminding us, I don't have to go far at all. All I have to do is pause and look in the mirror. And in that world, if, if the answer in the world is, is no God or a God who just keeps giving us over to that, the outcome is disastrous. So in the seventh century, God says, I'm not going to let this go a whole lot longer, and he's going to send judgment, but that judgment's going to come in, a, in his act of love, but it involves the Assyrian army and then the Babylonian army and, and two waves of this nation that are supposed to be God's people conquered, deported, becoming slaves and indentured servants, their lives. So, so if they go this way, they're going to end up with injustice, which means oppression and brokenness that are from the hand of their own people. If God acts and brings judgment, it's now going to be just oppression, brokenness at the hand of a different people. And God is sovereignly orchestrating this to work this out. And Micah's spent the whole book warning and seeing this. His, he, like, it's, it's awful. And I think if I was Micah, I would have curled up in a ball and given up. And this is for a lot of us, this is what happens because we, we would live for like a, a light in the sky and some, you know, some burning bush experience, something that would help us be able to believe and hold on. What do we do in this moment? And Micah has, has been wrestling all the way through this. And so when Micah lands the plane, when he ends the story, when he finishes his book, by the grace of God, he takes us to the only place any of us can go to find any sense of hope and meaning in the world. Because our world looks just like this. Pursuing our own path, our own gods, our own way of doing the world. We're going to run everything into a ditch. Uh, our families are broken. Our lives are a mess. Uh, we think that, that I can gain the resiliency. And most of the time what this means is I know what's right. I'm going to try to convince everybody else in the world that if you do it my way, it will work. I'm great at that, by the way. But, but it just keeps breaking relationships. It keeps causing more problems. There is no real hope in that. And then the other option is God giving us over to what we deserve. God bringing the justice that we all deserve. And where's the hope in that? And, and what's beautiful, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you know. Like you begin to know the answer. The answer is there's a baby born in Bethlehem, right? It's Advent. That's the hope. But that hope of the baby born in Bethlehem is rooted in a broader story. And, and, and the, like this, this 
beauty of the theology of the Bible, knowing the one true and living God. And so here's, here's what Micah's doing in the text we just read. And we're going to way back through it again here in just a minute. But here's what, what Micah is doing in the text we just read. He is meditating on the whole Old Testament, but very specifically one specific passage. And he is reminding himself of what he believes about the God who is. And he is reminding himself that that God has not left. He is the God who is there. In other words, he leans into his theology. Hear me this morning lovingly say, theology matters. Theology, what we believe about God matters. When you first come to faith in Jesus, sometimes all you know is that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Like that, that may be all you, you have and that's enough to find Christ and his glorious grace to reach you and redeem you and save you. But then the goal is to spend your life knowing God. Knowing God, centering your whole life on him, experiencing his grace and mercy. In other words, the whole rest of the journey is the study of who God is and how do I know him. And the reason it's so important is because we, when we get in Micah moments, when we get in these moments, what you have centered your life on and what you know about God is the only thing that can give you hope. If you don't know your God, these, these moments where the world is a mess and you get bad news or a broken relationship seems to be wrecking you, you'll have nothing to hold on to. And, and what you will do is you'll create a God in your own image. But here's why this is so, so deeply important. You are always moving in the direction of, of you are literally becoming whatever it is you worship. Believe it or not, Ralph Waldo Emerson has a quote that I find fascinating because he is the last thing, uh, like there's nothing about him really believing in the God of the scriptures in his whole like Walden experience, you know, his existentialist and all that kind of philosophy. But, but listen to what he says. A person will worship something. I have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our heart, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations, our thoughts, and determine, will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. He's right. What you were worshiping, you were becoming. In other words, what you have set your affections, your attention, your hopes and dreams on, you are moving that direction. Another guy uh, named A.W. Tozer, who's a pastor theologian, kind of explained it like this. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, listen, uh, here's what's happening in your life. If we could like stick an IV in your arm and pull like with your blood, your true understanding, your true theology, what you believe about God and your understanding of who your God is and how you worship that God. And like, if we could, we could draw that out and really know fully what you believe about God. We could at that moment predict with pretty much certainty the whole trajectory of your life. 
Like, like what you believe about God matters. And, and, and so what Micah is doing is saying the world is chaotic. The world is a mess. The world is broken. It doesn't seem like there's any source of hope. It doesn't seem like there's any source of meaning. How do we make it in this world? Do we just throw up our hands and give up? Or do we just believe in some kind of wishful thinking? Or have you driven your faith into the bedrock of the character of God? Micah ends his book by doing just that. He is reminding himself of what he believes. He has rooted his theology in what God has already said. He is literally meditating on an incredible passage in the scriptures from Psalm 34 that is a passage that I would tell you, mark your Bible. The passage he is meditating on is the most quoted passage in all of scripture. In fact, you didn't know it, but we actually quoted it three different times in three different passages this morning. Where where the authors of Psalms, like we sang it. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Comes from this. And what Micah's doing is he's going back to this text, but you gotta understand the text. The text has meaning because no text in the Bible is God is saying, I'm gonna show you and tell you who I am. I'm gonna reveal myself to you. I want you to open your eyes and see me. God never does that in a vacuum. He's not just dropping stuff out of heaven and hitting people in the chest with it going, there you go. Like the Bible, God's revelation is always in relationship. He is loving and pursuing his people all the time, all through scripture. And out of that, he is saying, here's who I am. Here's who I am. And so so, uh, Exodus 34 is this crazy moment. God has already rescued this nation. The Old Testament story of the Exodus where God delivered them from slavery, sent plagues as acts of judgment against Egypt, their oppressors. And he set them free. And then he parted this sea. They walked across on dry land. He delivered them. Their salvation from slavery was 100% God, 0% them. He has been their deliverer. He then brought them to a mountain and he he revealed himself. He gave them the, the 10 commandments. He explained to them his character. He has met them face to face. And Moses has been kind of the go between that is speaking on behalf of God as the mediator. And so Moses went down to the mountain and said, here's God's law. Here's God's love. Here's his covenant. He has formed a relationship. We, he is our God. We are his people. And then Moses goes back up to the mountain to meet God again. And in that moment, the, the, the people of Israel do what they did all through the Old Testament. And what we have a tendency to do is they forgot who their God was. They created their own, a, a different God. And then they broke all the commandments. We have this story. This this crazy story called the golden calf where they build an idol and say, there's our God. An idol of their own fashioning, their own making. And in anger, Moses breaks the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He comes down. God kind of tells Moses in a moment, showing what they deserve. He says, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes and God gives grace. He doesn't wipe them out, but they they have to go through repentance and it costs them like the gold that they had. Everything that they owned is now ground up and put into a river and it goes away. And, And God doesn't do what they deserve, but there is his justice. And then Moses comes back up the mountain and God goes, listen, I'm worn out from these people. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna keep all my promises, but I'm just not going with you. It's just this amazing moment in the story. 
It's a question we have to wrestle with. If, if God gave you everything he promised, but it cost you his presence, would you take the deal? Door number one, all the promises of God. Door number two, the presence of God. All the promises of blessings, going to heaven, eternal life, salvation, joy, hope over here, the presence of God over here. Which door are you taking? And Moses says, if you won't go with us there, I'm not going. I don't care what you give us. If you're not with us, there is no hope. It's the right answer. He chooses door number two. And in that moment, God says, good job. And he says, I'm going to tell you so you understand who I am. That's the context of the, 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 the golden calf, the absolute failure of God's people. God's justice deserved, but his mercy given. And in and, and that context, God says, Moses, write this down. This is who I am. For all the rest of the generations, I want people to understand theology. I want them to know the character of the one true and living God. I want them to understand me. I don't want them ever to forget. It is this passage that Micah is sitting and studying and contemplating and praying through, and it shows up in everything he says in the passage. Listen to it. Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. That's, you know, we've sung the song here, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's Jehovah. By the way, Jehovah, Yahweh, same, same title means the, the great I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see that? Abounding, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. His love endures forever. Love and faithfulness are central to understanding the theology, the character of God. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting their iniquity on the fathers and, the, and on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I not have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." This, this moment where God says, let me explain who I am. I'm the God who just loves people. I am faithful, but I'm also the God who will not let sin go unpunished. You need to understand that in all of scripture, this tension is the core tension of theology. How could God be perfect in his holiness and be a just and righteous judge? And how can God also be loving? To, how can he demonstrate his love when we deserve his justice? And Micah, God is, Micah has said over the whole chat, the book of Micah, hey, listen, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, we deserve only his justice. But he's given beautiful hints, beautiful clues to the people of God that says, but there is a hope coming. But that hope is a baby born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, that's exactly what he says. The hope is not in you guys getting it right. The hope is not in our goodness, our works, our attempts, our self-salvation, our championing, championing the cause. The hope is in the glorious character of the God who is and his plan of redemption where his 
goodness and grace. We're the two sides of this passage. I'm the God who loves, forgives. I am faithful. I will love you. I, my steadfast love endures forever. I'm the God who judges sin, and I will not let anything go unpunished. Those two ideas, and it's not that God is part love and part judge, justice. God is all these things in perfection. It's, it's a, a doctrine, are you ready? Kind of a weird idea, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Now, I'm, that doctrine, which is studied by theologians all over the place, does not mean that God is simple. It means that God is not made up of parts. God is totally love and he is totally just. He is not made up of justice and love like they're little parts of God. He is complete in all of his character and his attributes and glorious. But this issue creates a massive tension. And uh, Micah has spent his book warning and telling the people that they are deserving of God's justice. And now Micah could be losing hope. He could curl up in that ball and just weep and cry and have no hope in the world. What's he do? He goes back to his theology. He goes back to his understanding of God. Read it again with me. Grab it. Just look, listen to the language of Psalm 34 and what he writes. Who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Do you hear the inheritance language there? This wicked people who had a, had a uh, golden calf, th- those people are God's inheritance. They are his people. And now he's going to pass over to transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, but delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under feet. He will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. He is going, okay, where's this going? And his answer is, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to us for that day. I, I know that our God is good. Our God is faithful. He, he's not going to stay angry with us forever. He is going to forgive our sin. He is going to draw us. He's not done with us left yet. yet. He is a God who is gracious and good and kind. This God is a great and glorious God. We become people who are so satisfied in our little version of God. We're making little golden calves, and we think that is sufficient. And this God is declaring as a majestic, glorious mountain, lift your chin and see me. Know me. Come to me. Trust in me. Hold on to me. Spend your life consuming the glory and the beauty of God. Let this be your hope. Let this be your your, your passion. Let this be what controls you. Let this be what consumes you. Let this be the center of your life, because when life it's really hard. If we don't know God, we're going to try to lean into our own resilience, our own strength, our own power. We're going to create a God that is our own making. And our God and myself, I cannot rescue me. My, the gods I make cannot save me. There is no hope outside of the true and living God. Amen. He is the only one. We, we see the beauty. Like this text just kind of weighs us through some Beautiful things about this God. He's the God who makes himself known. Theology matters because God has come to us. Like, you, you gotta know the God we're talking about, the true and living God, the maker of heavens and earth, the maker of everything. You are not gonna get him, right? 
You're not going to wake up one morning and in your philosophy go, I think I have God figured out, right? I've, I've got my head wrapped around. Like, anywhere you think, like, one of the things in theology is I say theology matters. We should always hold our theology in humility because the minute I start thinking, I know this. No, you don't. Well, one of the things about, about like, I love this stuff. Like, I've got degrees studying theology, okay? And here's what I know. I know a lot more about God today than I knew five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And the more I know about God, the more I'm overwhelmed at my inadequacy to know anything about him. I was pretty smart in college in, in my 20s. I'm just in awe now of this God. Now, now hear this. That doesn't mean I just throw up my hands and go, I can't know God, therefore give up. That, that, that's not the way it's designed. What God has done is God has chosen to come to us and speak to us. He's chosen to come to us and make himself known. I'm not out on a discovery quest to try to discover God, and the Bible is just one of the great many books that help us understand. The God of the universe has condescended himself. He has brought himself down and chosen to make himself known so that what he reveals about himself is true. It's not everything there is in no God, but it is true, and I can believe what he has, he has told us. How has God done this? Well, we're told in the Bible that God has made himself known. He's revealed himself in creation. I can go outside and look at the, the nature of the universe and the nature of our world and know that there is a God and that God has made himself known that his divine nature or his character is on display through the things that he has made is what Romans 1 tells us. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth reveals his power. Like the, the, the beauty of our God is on display in what he has made. My much like going to an art show or going to a museum and seeing a great work of art and you see the glory of the painter. You don't get fixated on the painting. You see the painting and are in awe of the painter. In the same way, creation is there so that we see it and we're just in awe. We see the glory of mountains and the beauty of birds and, and, and the wonder of an eagle. We ex enjoy the taste of, of a turkey and pumpkin desserts and, and we, we enjoy them and then we're in awe not of what we ate but of the one who created all that is. God is making himself known. You lift your chin and see it. See the glory of the creator God in what he has made and know him. He has made himself known in the scriptures. The Bible, when you pick it up, is not just some random philosophy book about God. The God of this universe has spoken. Thus saith the Lord is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible, in the prophets. Micah, multiple times, starts out by saying, hey, fellas, not my words. This is what God has said. We open the Bible and God has made himself known. That passage in Exodus 34 is not just Moses' musings trying to figure out God. It is God's peeling back the veil between heaven and earth and stepping into our experience and saying, let me tell you who I am. I want you to know me. Let me tell you who I am. It's why opening the Bible and reading it matters. Because in the pages, God has spoken and is still speaking. We know God through the scriptures. And God has made himself known through his son, Jesus, who stepped into humanity. The whole Bible says, if you really want to know what God look like, looks like, pay attention to Christmas. 
Study the life of Jesus. Look at him. See how Christ is the center of the whole Bible. And Jesus multiple times says things like this. If you want to know what the Father looks like, look at me. I and the Father are one. Like there's days where I sit around and go, I just wish there'd be like a firework in the sky that had the writing. Here I am, here's what to do, right? But we need to know that the way God has chosen to peel back the story and make himself known is by coming into the world himself. And Hirsch, like our theology is the theology of the God who is there, who is here, who is present, who makes himself known. He is the God, he's not just the God who makes himself known. He, he's the God who loves and pursues. He never gives up. He just loves it. Like when you think of God, what words come first to, to mind? Holy is important. God is completely holy. But the, the words that are repeated over and over is that God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, they, they are what's called covenant words. In other words, they are what God is saying to people who have a relationship with them. He's saying, listen, no matter what you think about me and what you know about me, never forget, never forget that I love you and I will be true to what I told you. I love you and I'll be true to what I took. I'm, I'm not giving up on you. I'm pursuing. And his love is not a, a love of like, a, you know, if you love me, I'll love you back. Like that's kind of, if you grew up in a real, really religious setting, I'm not going to test you today, but think about this as I say it. Does, does God love you because you're good? Like a lot of us grew up in, in, in religious settings thinking, okay, when I'm, 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 struggling and I'm bad and I'm making a mess, God doesn't love me. What God loves good people. I have to be a good person. You, you do realize that the whole storyline of the Bible is, of, is not a God loving good people, but a God loving and pursuing really broken, jacked up, messed up people. That's the storyline. Listen, let me settle it. If you don't understand it, at the heart of your theology is one true and living God who loves you. He is for you. He is pursuing you. He is not going to give up on you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, you can know that that is never going to end. His love is not based on your good works, your kindness, your efforts. It is based on himself. He is a God who loves. And he loves you. He is for you. I, I love, we, we, our kids, as they were growing up, we kept reading the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I always like her description of this word love. It's a Hebrew word that, that just the steadfast love, the never-ending love. She describes it, Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Story Book Bible describes it like this, that, that God's love is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's pretty good, right? He is for you, he loves you, and when when. You drift and start walking away. God is not going to give up on you. Now, his, his pursuit of you may be hard. This is what's happening in Israel. His, his love is not letting them drive off the cliff, but is giving them the love of discipline. That is part of the story. But, but here, here is, is Micah going, 
You're gonna remember his steadfast love and faithfulness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. It just gets repeated over and over and over in the whole Bible. And I'm not gonna forget who he is. Like, like no matter what I feel this morning, no, I, I may feel abandoned by everybody else. I may feel alone. I may feel broken. I may feel like I'm a hot mess and I'm unlovable. In the midst of this, I am going to remind myself, my theology reminds me that God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is not giving up on me. He loves me. And his love is not based on my performance. It is not based on my goodness. But here's what happens. The beauty of the gospel is that God loves broken, messed up people and he never stops loving him. And his love in the lives of unlovable people will make them lovable. It is the love of God that transforms you. The justice of God can wake you up, but it is the love of God that will transform you. It is when you experience his affection and tenderness and mercy and kindness and joy and, 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 and pursuit of you that you will truly begin to look like Jesus and be transformed by it. He, he loves you. A third thing that, that Mike is helping us see is that this is the God who judges rightly. And, and, and just a reminder that he is a just judge. All of Micah has reminded us of that. He is a just judge and he will not let sin go unpunished and it becomes part of the problem. His holiness requires this, his righteousness. And we kind of live in a culture right now. You, you, like it's just the water you swim in where people don't, like in our culture, in Western culture, especially Western, you know, people who are, are, are more Anglo-Saxon, white, white culture have kind of wrestled with how do we deal with the justice of God and we've just kind of pushed it to the side. Oppressed cultures, this is not their problem. They have other issues, but oppressed cultures want a God who's a judge because they're being oppressed. They're looking for that God to act on their behalf or other things. But in our culture, like just all around us, the, the, the idea of a God who will judge is just going away. I uh, had a conversation with one of our elders this week about the fact that he had listened to a podcast of somebody who's kind of a theologian who just has decided that God God is not really the judge of the Bible. There is no such thing as hell. We're just going to get rid of that. And it's trying to push, like there's this movement to say, we just can't believe this. God is a judge. God's justice. It's, it is like the water we swim in. Everybody out there who's wrestling with issues, like if you stand up and say, listen, I believe in a God who's a judge. I believe that wickedness will, will not have the final say and God will act against wickedness. You're just seen as a weirdo who believes this archaic nut job stuff. But what happens is none of us really understand what we've given up. If, if, if you are going to say, I'm going to ignore that, God has revealed himself, but I don't like that part of God. I just can't believe in a God who will judge people. I, don't, I just can't believe in a God who would judge my neighbors. I can't, listen, to, you, you need to know what you are actually giving up. Like, you, you do get that this world's awful. Evil's a real thing. And, and if you've decided that your God is not going to be a judge, Make no bones about it. Hitler dying in the arms of his, his mistress. He wins. Evil is victorious. You, you, are, you, you have, without meaning to, you have decided to believe in a God who is impotent or unwilling to do anything about the evil and wickedness in the world. When the Bible says God is a judge, he's declaring that your suffering and your brokenness and the way you've been mistreated and the oppression and injustice of the world, God is declaring from the mountaintops, it will not have the final say. And I want that for people who are doing the injustice. I want that for Hamas. I, I want that for, for greedy 
people who have oppressed people to gain their own wealth. I just don't want it for me. And so what we do, we're, we're really good at this. We will believe in a God who's a judge, and then we'll look at my feet. Here's what I do. I put my feet here. Here's the line. God, get everybody on that side of the line. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, and I deserve God's justice. I, I don't want to believe that, but I, I do deserve God's justice. How does this God show us love? We have the God who is not only that, he is a, he is a, he is a judge, just judge of God. And Micah reminds us he, he's the God who welcomes rebels, though. In verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into depths of the sea. Micah is rooting his hope not in a God who will find the good people and make them better. He he is a God who finds the broken and cast off people and, and, and draws them to himself. The God who rescues rebels. I love this. I love that if you read the Bible, like you read the Bible, you keep looking for the good guy. The good guy doesn't exist. Every person that, you know, you remember growing, if you grew up in Sunday school or did Veggie Tales, we have, you know, all these stories of all these heroes. What happens if you actually read the whole Bible, you get past the story of the hero and get to the real nitty gritty of their life? They're all terrible. Murders and abusers and, and, and like they're all awful. I love Christmas time. You know, one of the things is the story of Jesus. And I told you we're going to talk about Ruth. The story of Ruth, or the story of, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew lays out the genealogy of Jesus. He's kind of telling us, hey, here's what it looks like for God to rescue and redeem. He's sending a person into the world and all these promises. He's, he's the right bloodlines. He's the family of Abraham, family of David, all this sort of stuff. But in that, there are four women named in, in the story of Jesus with Mary being the fifth one, the four women in the Old Testament who are named. One of them, well, actually, um, two of them are prostitutes. One of them has an adulterous affair with the king that turns into a massive political scandal. And one of them is an outsider because she is not part of God's people. They are all broken, hot mess people. And the whole point is that God rescued them. He loves them. He pursues them. God rescues rebels. You may be hearing like, hey, I I just can't buy it. Like, I can't believe that God would love me before me. In the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is, no, this is the story of a God who rescues rebels. The last thing I'll tell you this morning from, from this passage is that this is a God who wins and reigns. He is the king. Like, the, the end of the text, he, he, Micah is reminding himself. He's saying, you will show steadfast faithfulness to Jacob, Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. Do you see it again? So you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I know you've made all these promises, and I know those promises are rooted in your character, and I know what that means. God, you win. You are going to be victorious. You are the king you are going to, like, you are sovereign over everything. And I may look at my life and, and not make sense of the world, but my theology, my understanding, because you have said so and you have proven over and over again, is that in every situation, you are actually in control of it all and you are working for our good, for your glory. You're working out your purpose. In this moment, I, I don't fully, like, it's hard, but I know where this goes. It goes to you being faithful and good to us. And that's what's happening. And nothing's gonna stop what you want. Nothing. 
that this is the story. Now, now watch this. This is why it matters. Our theology matters. If we chase after our own gods, we'll end up with something we've made that is puny and unable. But when you know the God of the Bible, when you wrestle with the true and living God, you will begin to, to bask in the fact that he has made himself known. We're not left guessing. He is loving you and pursuing you. He is a God of justice, which means evil is not going to have the final say. Yet I am a rebel and he pursues me. And at the end of the day, he is going to have his perfect will. He's going to accomplish his plan on the earth. And so here I am in my situation and I'm trying to make sense of it. If I can figure out those five things, I can look in that situation and go, I have hope. But what happens is that Micah is in the Old Testament. He doesn't understand how all this comes together. How's this dilemma solved? How could a God who was righteous and just, but also love, express that justice and love to me at the same time? And that's where a, a baby crying in a manger in Bethlehem, who is God with us, Emmanuel, brings the whole story, Micah's hope, the promise of Exodus 34, the whole story comes together in the God who is there, right? He is there in a manger. He is there uh, growing up in, in Nazareth. He is there walking the Sea of Galilee. He is there being baptized by John. He is the God who is there is healing the sick and making the blind see and the lame walk. He is rescuing people from the dead. He is calming the sea. The God who is there is present in the person of Jesus. And so I sit here and go, I don't, I, I, I wish I had something tangible. The Bible say, there's the tangible. Look to Jesus, know him. The God who is there is with us. And this God who is there is loving people. Faithfulness and love is being expressed through everything he does. Everything he does. The faithfulness and love of God is present in Jesus. And that faithfulness and love gets him sideways with religious people who don't like that kind of expression to the marginalized, the oppressed, the broken. And they hang him on a cross, but we know this. That was God's plan. Satan thought he was thwarting God's plan and he would just enable it. The, the religious leaders thought they were getting rid of this political nightmare and this awful person who's a mess and they were accomplishing the very purpose of God and they put Jesus on the cross and here's what happened. On the cross of Christ, this baby born in a major grows up and dies on the cross and the justice of God is poured out on the Son of God so that the glory of God can reveal the love of God to you and to me. That's the story. That's right. You guys got it right. Not, not because I said it. This is the essence of God. God has made himself known. Run to him, know him. The true and living God is our only hope. But God has revealed himself and our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ because God's perfect justice and perfect love come together perfectly so that God who should give us justice has given that to Jesus so he can just unleash this unending glorious fountain of grace and love in our lives. Know him. Make knowing Christ the sole goal of your life. Pursue him. Open the scriptures. You go, but I read it and I don't understand it. Keep going. Don't give up. You'll, it'll start making sense. Be in community where people can help you. Experience mercy and grace by knowing God. Now, it's not just knowing information. A ton of people know a lot of information. They have great theology and they don't really know God. Theology should lead to doxology. In other words, if 
What I know about God is not turning into praise, worship, and hope, and trust in him. I'm doing it wrong. So this is why every week, I get done with my sermon, I walk off the stage, and we don't just pack up our Bibles and go home. Because when you hear the gospel and you see the God who is, we have this moment where we bring it together and try to say, let's point you to Jesus. The response of every heart in there ought to be lift our hearts to look and see him. And when we see him, we can't do anything but love him back. Right? That's like our liturgy, our rhythm of service is designed to give you at least two songs where you can start what you, you should do all week long from here, which is make much of Jesus. But we're going to start with a couple songs where we can do that together. And if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't think I know this Jesus. We want to tell you more about him. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like. He is pursuing you. He is pursuing you in this message, in this sermon. God is after you. He is pursuing you because he loves you. Run to him. We will have people over here during the second song. We would love to pray with you, talk with you, have a conversation. I'll be at the back at the end of service. I would love to have that conversation with you and talk to you and talk to you about what it means to trust and hold on to him. But make this pursuit of Jesus your sole purpose in life, the center of your being. If he is your God, that's what it means. And it is only there where you will be able to make sense of a broken world and your own broken life. And you will find hope. In your theology, theology matters. Now, that, that theology should produce all kinds of things. One of the things it should produce in us is generosity, deep, beautiful, hilarious giving. And one of the things we do as a, a church family is during the Christmas holidays, we start an offering. We, we give people a chance to say, okay, I'm buying gifts for all my kids and all my other family members, but the most important thing I can do is to realize I've been given so much to give back. And so we do this thing called the Advent Conspiracy Offering. Every penny, like this is not a fundraising offer, offering for anything we do here. Every penny of this offering during the holiday season is given to our international partners who are taking the gospel to the nations. So, so it is an offering that is collected. Part of it will go to, to our, like our personal partners. We have partners that are in Papua New Guinea, pop, partners that are in Ecuador that we support as a church. We're also part of this this group called Great Commission Baptists that have sent thousands of missionaries to the hardest parts of the world. A big part of that offering will go to them. And so we're going to show you a video to tee that up. And as we show you the video, we just want you to start praying. We, here's our encouragement to every family in the church during the Christmas season. Pray about how the, how the Lord would have you just in response to what God has done for you, give so that you can be part of taking the message you heard this morning to every person on planet earth. And, and then just be obedient to that. And then we have a box here. You can always just drop. We have like the, this, this box that's down here in front if you can't see it. Uh, you can always give your offering there. Normally Christmas Eve service, we give families a chance to give then. So if you want to wait till the Christmas Eve service, but anytime during this month, you can give to the Advent Conspiracy Offering. It will go to that. So I'm going to pray. And then you're going to watch the screen, see the video, and then we're going to sing. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your kindness and mercy in us. Thank you for pursuing us and loving us in spite of us. Thank you that you are the God who is there. You are still with us. You are still here. You are in this room today making yourself known. May our hearts be drawn to you, oh Jesus. May we lift our chins and see you during this holiday and Advent season. And may you be the source of our hope. We know the world is broken and our lives are broken, but you are good and your steadfast love and faithfulness endure. In your name I pray, amen.